0: Chapter two of Haggai. Haggai. Uh, Haggai. On Haggai today. Seven, Seven Haggai. <laughs> um, this is the sixth message in a, in a series that we've called the Rebuilders. Uh, started off in Amos, and with our verse, I will bring my people Israel back from exile, and they will rebuild. And then we went to Ezra and saw how the process got started. But then it got stopped and Haggai, Haggai came along with God's word. And last week we did chapter one of Haggai and this week we're going to finish out the rest of the book. This might be a message that if you find yourself sort of needing something for your ears someday, you might want to listen to it again because there's a lot of bullets in this gun. It is packed full of stuff and it is encouraging stuff. So just a reminder of where we are in our timeline. It's about 520 BC. It's 16 years after the exiles returned and began to rebuild the temple. But then opposition arose in Ezra chapter 4. And due to the opposition and due to apathy and indifference and a whole lot of other things, they stopped working on the temple. So Ezra 4 ends with the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill. Opposition, and that led to apathy and indifference, which we saw last week. At the start of Ezra 5, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet a descendant of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So the work stops for 16 years, and then these two fellows, Haggai and Zechariah, come along and bring God's word. And what we saw last week from Haggai chapter 1 was the word of the Lord that came to the people, was calling them out for procrastination, faffing around, wasting time and focusing on other things instead of God's presence in their midst. They were building luxurious houses, but not building a house for the Lord. Their harvests were failing, not because they were bad at uh, growing food, but because God was striking their harvests to get their attention. And in Haggai chapter 1, they're called to think, to reflect to ponder what way they've been living and what's going on, how things are faring for them. They're called to reprioritize God's presence and God's temple. They're called to listen to God. They're called to get up the mountain and to get resources to build the temple, which I think is a picture of of prayer. And what happens at the end of Haggai chapter 1 is that the people obey. We didn't cover these verses last week, but they obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord stirs up the spirit of Zerubbabel and Joshua and all of the people and they came and began to work. So the work resumed again. After a 16 year pause, the work gets started. But God isn't done with Haggai and Haggai still will need to go to these builders on several more occasions and encourage them and bring them a message from the Lord. And that's what goes on in the rest of the book. So we're going to read from chapter 2. I'm just going to read the first three verses. We're going to cover most of chapter 2, although not particularly in order. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. This is one month after the material that we covered last week, or just less than one month later. God doesn't, some, he doesn't give you everything at once sometimes because you can't handle it. <laughs> and last week was heavy enough going for the people that were listening to Haggai. So for, for, uh, you know, for him to come again with another message, there's, there's, a, there's a period of rest or a period of, of, of a break of about three and a half weeks in between. But this next message comes and in verse 2, he's told, Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. We're going to get to it later, but do you know what? See, when you're reading this little book, you do wonder, why are we told every single time that Zerubbabel is mentioned who his daddy was? Every time. You're like, seriously, lad, we know. And it, but every, nearly every time his name is mentioned in the book, it's followed up with, oh, by the way, he's the son of Shealtiel. We'll get to that. He's the governor of Judah. He's in charge of the building project. So he's probably a bit discouraged uh, by, by the last 16 years. Speak to him and to Joshua and to the remnant of the people and ask them. Here's a question that's coming. God says to the people, Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? It's one of those moments where the people are thinking and God knows their thoughts and calls them out on it. It's just like Jesus does. There's a, there's a few incidents in the Gospels where the disciples are arguing about something daft or they're, they're discussing something. And Jesus just, he knows what they're thinking and he calls them out on it. And God knows what the people are thinking. And what they're thinking is this temple is nowhere near as good as the last one. Nowhere near. It's not going to be as big and it's not going to be as nice and it's not very impressive. And what's happening is discouragement is once again seeping into the people. They've only just started rebuilding and already there's that comparison going on to what was built before. God basically says to them, what do you think of this? What I'm doing here with this temple through you? What do you think? You know, what's, what's in your heart? How does it compare to the original? And we've got a little bit of detail on this in Ezra 3, which we covered a few weeks ago, where we had celebration when the foundation of the temple was laid. Verse 12 of chapter 3, many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple, the first one, wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being led. So you've got the young generation who are all excited about this new work of God rebuilding. And then the older generation are sowing a few seeds of discouragement. Now that is not in any way disparaging towards the older generation. The reason they were discouraged was they had seen what God had done in the past in the original temple. And they were starting to look at this new one and say, it's not going to be as good. It's not going to be as big and it's not going to be as shiny. It's, not going to be a, it's just going to be a barn compared to what we had before. And what Haggai suggests in, in, in verse 3 is that that discouragement is seeping out to all of the builders now. And God is going to address it with a word from Haggai. Not only the older generation, but this is starting to affect the younger generation and they want to quit. Have you ever felt like that whenever what you are working on is compared to something you did in the past or something that someone else is working on down the street or in the next town or wherever. And you compare the two and you suddenly feel very discouraged about what you're doing. Joel is smiling at me. I don't know why he's smiling at me. It's maybe because earlier on this morning, I said I was going to visit his garden in Newcastle. And I told him that you know the last garden that I saw, apart from my own, which is best left you know, unmentioned, was Hillsborough Castle Garden yesterday. <laughs> the standards are very high if we're going to compare them. But these, these people were comparing what they were doing to what had gone before. Do you ever do that? Or what you're doing to what somebody else is doing? And you go, oh, look at, look at them. Look at the acceleration. Look at the speed. Look at how well everything's done. And Look at, look at this small thing that I'm working on. Or ever compared what God is doing in your life with what he seems to be doing in somebody else's life? One of these people who just seems to hear God every 10 minutes and you're like, I'm desperate to hear God, you know? And you compare and you start to get discouraged. And that discouragement is spreading and it does spread. It is contagious. Nigel started this morning by talking about the, the power of encouragement in the church and the importance of it. And I completely echo that. Because discouragement can spread very easily. It just takes a small group of people to get discouraged and to start saying, oh, it's not like that, and it's not like this, and that's better, and this was better. And then it starts to spread through everybody. It's particularly bad whenever a young person is discouraged by an older person who should be encouraging them. A young person maybe comes and they're excited because some simple faith-filled prayer request has been answered and an older person then will say, oh, it's nothing like I saw when I was a younger man. You know, We saw God move and we saw revival and we saw this and we saw that. And it's good to remember and reflect and thank God for what he's done in the past. But we've got to know what he's doing now. And we've got to encourage one another and not just talk about the past all the time. So in the midst of this discouragement that God is calling out in his people, he sends a message in verse 4 of Haggai saying, Be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. Don't look at what you're doing as being insignificant. And we're going to build on this as we go along and come back to it. Don't underestimate how God is using you to bless others. Again, Nigel mentioned as he started just about how somebody 20 years ago had been encouraged and helped by something he'd said that he couldn't even really remember. Don't underestimate how much God will use you. These people were underestimating what God would do in this temple, and we will see later what God will do in this temple. But they were underestimating it. And another prophet came along at the same time. Haggai is a quite straightforward, simple book to read. It's, you know, it's fairly much face value. You can glean a lot from it just from reading it. His mate, Zechariah, holy blesses. That man, I don't know how, what sort of cheese he's been eating, but he is saying some crazy stuff. And Zechariah comes along at the same time and he says to the people, who dares despise the day of small things? It's one of the most well-known verses in a very difficult book. Don't ever despise small beginnings. If you're just working away at something and it seems tiny, insignificant, think about the number of times in, in God's word that he talks about seeds. Seeds. And how Jesus himself talks about the seed going into the ground. Small. You just can't find much smaller than a seed. So it's a small... Don't, don't despise. Don't look down on seemingly small, insignificant things. Don't compare it with massive things and then want to quit. If you compare a seed with a grown plant or a tree, you'll probably get quite discouraged and say, look at my wee seed, or, it's useless, and you suck it away. But that seed has within it the potential to be every bit as big and, and strong as the tree. Be strong is what God says to the people over and over again. Be strong. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you're, you want to encourage somebody, but you feel that your words are sort of trite and... and uh, Somebody's going through a really genuine, very difficult trial and you want to say something to them in that trial to encourage them, but you feel that what you say is just so trivial and light because you're not in it. (laughs) You're not going through it as they're going through it. Ever walked out of a hospital and and left a ward and said to somebody, good night, I hope you sleep well. But as you're walking down the corridor, you're thinking... You're not going to sleep well <laughs> because the phone's going to ring all night at this office and the beeps of machines are going to go all night and there's going to be people coughing in wards and and you're probably not going to sleep well. And you, and you feel your words that you've just said are sort of meaningless because you, you can't You can't back them up. You can't do anything to help the person sleep well. The person's sick, in hospital, listening, to machine's beeping. And there's nothing you can do. And that person may be lying in the bed as you're walking around or walking out. And they may be thinking, yeah, sleep well as if. (laughs) Some hope. It's nice of you to say so, but you're not going through what I'm going through. You can go home to your own bed. You ever want to encourage someone, but you just feel all you're giving them is empty words. You've got nothing to really sort of back it up. Well, it's not like that with God. Because whenever God says to the people, be strong, it's not just a sort of a token, all the best now, hope it goes well. I say, yeah, That's, it's not like that with God. God says, be strong and look at how he qualifies it, because he always qualifies it. Be strong, Zerubbabel, for I am with you. I am. That name of God. I am with you. That's why whenever he says to be strong, it's not a light little throwaway phrase. Because where you may be on your own as far as no other human being with you and no one going through that precise valley that you're going through, no one quite understanding what you're experiencing, God, you know, those people can encourage you and they can speak into your life, but God can say, I am with you. And to these discouraged builders, and particularly Zerubbabel, that's what he says. And Jesus does the same thing in one of my favorite passages. And one of the first things that, that I did on that wretched YouTube flipping session during lockdown was Revelation chapter 1. At the end of Revelation 1, Jesus tells a persecuted church, people who are dying for following him. He says to them, don't be afraid. I'm like, well, Really? <laughs> don't be afraid. We've got a Roman emperor who wants to set us on fire or feed us to lions. How can? What good is it to say, don't be afraid? But Jesus says, don't be afraid because I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead. You're being threatened with death. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. Not only that, I hold the keys of death. Jesus' words of encouragement to people facing death is, I have been there, I have come through, I hold the keys. So God tells his discouraged builders to be strong because he is with them. And that is God's word to people throughout the ages. And throughout the scriptures. You will read it over and over again. In fact in Haggai chapter 2 verse 5 he says to the people, he has just said at the end of verse 4, I am with you and then at the start of verse 5, this is what I covenanted with you when I came when you came up out of Egypt. I am with you. I was with you then. I told you I would be with you. I am still with you. It's the promise that he gave to Moses. Let's just take a quick Skype through a few Old Testament Legends starting with Moses in Exodus 33. The Lord says to Moses, my presence will go with you. Verse 14. That's his promise to Moses. So the same God who was with Moses when the people came up out of Egypt is with these builders and is with you. Same God. In Joshua chapter 1 verse 9. The same God Who's with the builders was also with Joshua and said to him, Be strong and courageous, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you. Joshua 1 9. So he was with Moses coming out of Egypt, he's with Joshua going into the promised land. In Jeremiah chapter 1, Jeremiah is the prophet who is going to get in the face of these wicked kings of Judah and call them out. And, and prophesy the exile and see them going into the exile, and he's scared. In Jeremiah one, it's a brilliant chapter, but he's scared about what God's calling him to. And in verse eight, the encouragement that God gives him is, "Don't be afraid of them; I am with you." The same God who was with Jeremiah is with the rebuilders. And in First Chronicles chapter twenty-eight. David says to Solomon, be strong and courageous, do the work, do not be afraid or discouraged for the Lord God, my God is with you. First Chronicles 28 20. So God says through the prophet to the people who are building, you are comparing this building project to that building project. And God is saying to them, I was with Solomon in that building project, and I am with you in this one. In fact, if you look at what David said to Solomon back in 1 Chronicles 28, you will see that David says, when Solomon's about to build the first temple, David says exactly the same stuff that Haggai is saying to these discouraged rebuilders. He says, be strong, do the work, don't be afraid, God is with you. It's exactly the same four things because the point is not it's a different temple. They they were making that the issue. They were saying, our temple is not as good as that temple. Our church is not as big as that church. Our growth is not as fast as that growth. Whatever. That's what they were saying. They were comparing and God is saying to them, no, 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 no. The key point is not that it's a different temple. The point is it's the same God, okay? It's the same God. The same God who was with Moses coming out of Egypt, with Joshua going into the promised land, with Jeremiah getting in the faces of evil kings, with Solomon building the original temple, is with them building this new temple. Don't compare the project. Compare the God. And he's the same God. He's the same God. That is the key truth. And we need to keep hearing that even as we work and as we rebuild and be about ministry and be about mission to keep on at the work because God is with us and he's not with us in a lesser way, please. Don't do the thing that I sometimes do. I read about God being with Moses and then I think about God being with me and I think it's different. Or I read about God being with Joshua and then I think about God being with me and I think, well, it's different. It's got to be different. I can't possibly be the same. No, it's the same. It's the same. In fact, maybe it's even more so because his spirit is within us. And maybe for us to say God is with us is an even more powerful statement than it was for Moses, Joshua, Jeremiah or Solomon. God is with us. Jesus, in his final words at the very end of Matthew 28, said to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, And surely I am with you always. So as we build, as we build, we need to remember he is with us. He's not with us 20%. It's not like I gave Moses everything and I gave Joshua everything and I'm going to give you a wee tiny bit. No, no, no. He's with us 100%. (coughs) And if God is for us, Romans 8.31 says, who can be against us? And note in, in Haggai chapter 2 and verse 5 this at the start of the verse he says, you know, this is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. Does anybody see a problem there? This is what it, so, so Haggai is addressing in 520 BC, he's addressing the exiles who've come from Babylon and they're in Jerusalem. And he speaks God's word to them. And God's word says, this is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. Hang on. They didn't come out of Egypt. Egypt was like, I don't know, 800 years before. But God speaks to them and says, this is, what, this is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt. Do you understand, folks, that, that God's promises transcend time and they transcend generations. And when God looks at his people, he sees his people. And the promises that he makes to his people hold fast. They hold fast. They go the distance. The promise that he made to his people, God doesn't see the promise that he made to Moses as being any different to the promise that he's making to Zerubbabel. He refers to Zerubbabel and he says, this is what I said to you when you came out of Egypt. You are part of my people, part of my covenant promises, and what I have said in the past to my people, I say to you. Just because you've been removed by a few hundred years of time does not mean that the promise has been weakened or is different. And he is specific then about how his presence will be with them. Still in verse 5, the second half of the verse says, my spirit remains among you my spirit. I am with you. My spirit remains among you. Again, Zechariah prophesying at the same time said to Zerubbabel, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. That's how this work will be done. Don't fall into the trap of thinking effort, 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 and all of that. Hard work is important and it's good from time to time, of course. But God says, this will be achieved by my spirit, my presence among you, not just by your efforts. God's spirit among his people has always been focused on a, on a place for his presence. When you read Exodus Thirty-one. the first few verses of Exodus 31 talks about a guy called Bezalel and he's an artist. He's a craftsman. There are some people who can work with materials and cobble something together and there are others who just do amazing things (laughs) with materials. I can take two bits of wood and screw them together and do something with them. I know other people who can take two bits or 10 bits of exceptionally expensive wood and create something exceptionally beautiful. God gifts this guy Bezalel. It says, I have filled him with my spirit. This is Exodus 31. And the reason God has filled him with the spirit of God, with wisdom and understanding and knowledge and skill, is to make stuff. And the stuff that he's going to make is the tabernacle which is the place where God will dwell. The Holy Spirit is always active, creating a place for the dwelling of God. And one of the things in the modern church that we've probably left behind a little bit that we shouldn't have is the beauty of art in the church. Because a lot of our buildings are just functional spaces with awesome lighting and awesome sound and comfortable seats. But you don't have the beauty that you had in churches and cathedrals three, four hundred years ago. We've we've sort of pushed all the art, all the creativity, all the beauty out. God's Spirit is at work in this guy creating a place for God. And the end of it all is do not fear. My Spirit is among you, so do not be afraid. Now I'm going to jump back to a few verses after this later on. But I want to I think about this guy, Zerubbabel. Yeah? Funny name. It means planted in Babylon. He was born in Babylon. He never saw the original temple. And I love the fact that Zerubbabel gets this direct personal word from God. Now listen to me. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. In the midst of all of this, God picks out one man. What's so special about this one man, Zerubbabel? At the end of Haggai chapter 2, there's a final prophetic word. And the final prophetic word is not to the people. It's not to the people and Joshua, the high priest. It's just for Zerubbabel, just for him. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel. It reminds me of in Mark chapter 16 on resurrection morning, Jesus says, tell Peter. He doesn't just say, go and tell everybody. Specifically, he he mentions Peter by name. Tell the disciples and Peter. Make sure you tell Peter because Peter's discouraged and I want to encourage him. Tell Zerubbabel, think of how discouraged this man is. Have you ever tried to do something for God? And for 16 years, it has just lain in ruin. Sort of half-baked, half-finished, half half asked, just lying there. 16 years. Imagine how discouraged this man was. He was the one who came up with all the young people out of Babylon to rebuild the temple, and for 16 years, nothing had happened. Can you just put yourself in the dude's sandals for a minute and think about how he felt and what people thought of him and how they spoke about him? Oh, there's Zerubbabel who was going to rebuild the temple. It's not going too good. I wonder, did he and Joshua get together now and again over coffee and have a chat about... What, what they felt God had called them to do, and how can we get this thing going again? He's discouraged. And God ministers personally to discouraged people. He sends a word via Haggai for Zerubbabel, go get him and tell him this. And as if that wasn't bad enough, Zerubbabel carried another burden in life that you have to sort of dig around to find. Back in Jeremiah chapter 22, stick with me because this is good. Back in Jeremiah 22, God is fed up with a king called Jehoiakim, who is the last king of Judah. He's the one who is king whenever the exile begins. And he's a bad egg. And God is utterly fed up with him, with his rebellion and with the way he behaves and with his wickedness. And in Jeremiah 22, 30, the message of the Lord comes and says this: Record this man, that's Jehoiakim, as if childless. Now, if you were a king, that was bad. Okay? Record this man, Jehoiakim, as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime in his lifetime. For none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. Now, we just read that and just think it's a random verse from Jeremiah. That's devastating to the people of God because they've just been told the monarchy is over. The king, David, who was promised that he would have a eternal an everlasting kingdom would come from him, pointing forward to Jesus. But that there would always be offspring of David on the throne. And God is so fed up that he says to Jeho- Jehoiakim, it's over. None of the descendants of David are going to sit on the throne anymore. The monarchy is at, a, at an end. And he says specifically to Jehoiakim, still in Jeremiah 22, stick with me because it's good. I never let you down. Jeremiah twenty two twenty four. 24, he says to Jehoiakim, even if you were a signet ring on my right hand, I'd still pull you off. Now a signet ring is what the king would have used to dip into wax on a letter to seal the authority of the king into this letter. And he says, and you're, so a signet ring was a pretty precious piece of jewelry. It was probably the best thing the king had. And he says to Jehoiakim the king, Even if you were my signet ring, I would still throw you away. I'm so sick of your wickedness. Don't ever apply something like that to yourself as if some mistake that you made will cause God to throw you away. This man was an absolute rebellion against God. He was a wicked, wicked man. Even if you were my signet ring, I would still throw you away. Now, Jehoiakim had a son. And his son's name was Shealtiel. And Shealtiel had a son, (laughs) and you know his name because you've been told about 10 times in the book of Haggai and Ezra. Zerubbabel is the son of Shealtiel. Zerubbabel is the grandson of Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was the wicked king of whom God said, I'm done with the monarchy. And even if you were my signet ring, I would throw you away. So Zerubbabel not only has to sit and drink his coffee with Joshua in the evening and talk about the fact that their rebuilding project has failed for 16 years, he also has to live with the fact that he should be king. And he's not. And if the exile had had not happened, he would be king of Judah. But now he is nothing. (laughs) He's a failure. You can't even get this rebuild going, never mind be king. You think of the discouragement that that man carries. And then you see a God who finds a prophet, who sends a message just to Zerubbabel and says, tells Zerubbabel, I will make you like my signet ring. Even though I'm done with Jehoiakim and his wickedness, I have made promises, and those promises, Zerubbabel, will be fulfilled through you. Because God is faithful, and he said to David that there would be an everlasting kingdom from the line of David. It looked like it was over with Jehoiakim because the monarchy was finished, but God says to to discourage Zerubbabel, you're my signet ring. I'm putting it back on. I'm going to fulfill my promises And when you read further on in your Bible and you get to Matthew chapter 1, the lineage of Jesus, there he is, Zerubbabel. Isn't it amazing how God will go after one discouraged servant with a bespoke, tailored word for that person? I remember a time when Linda and I were going through incredible discouragement and we thought it was over. (laughs) As in this, we thought this is going to crumble. And we went to Ballyard's castle in Armagh for an evening. We were broken beyond belief. (laughs) And a guy came over to us and he started to pray over us and prophesy over us. Now, he had an Irish accent, but he doesn't live here. He ministers in England, I think somewhere near London, and has been for a long, long time. He's never been to this town that I'm aware of and uh, has no previous connection with us. And we thought we we were on the brink of just being done. And he came and he said to us, the wind is at your back. Now, he didn't know then, that the word Tandragi means back to the wind. And isn't it amazing how God will send a bespoke, tailored, personal word to his discouraged people? Not just a generic, all the best, keep at it, Mm -hmm. but tailored right down to the fine details because he knows what people need to hear. Tell Zerubbabel, I will make you like my signet ring. We're drawing to a close. There's there's a bunch of verses eleven to nineteen that are a bit tricky, but and I'm not going to linger on them. I just want to point out one thing because it's a trap that rebuilders can fall into. Verse twelve of Haggai two. So this this is if you don't get this, it's okay. You're still good. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment. That's meat that's going to be sacri- or offered in the temple. And that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food. Does it become consecrated? So this question is posed to the priests in Haggai 2.12. In other words, if you have a piece of holy meat that is going to, be, to offer, be offered up in the temple, and it touches a loaf of bread, which is neutral, will the loaf of bread become holy? Because it came into contact with the holy meat. And the priests say, no, it won't. And then there's another question. The question is, if a person is defiled by contact with a dead body and touches one of these things, bread or whatever, does it become defiled? And the priests say, yes, it does. Now, the gist of it is this. According to the law, holiness is not contagious. You don't become holy because you have touched something else which is holy. Holiness is not passed from one thing to another. But uncleanness is. If you touch something that's unclean, you become unclean. So the point is, uncleanness can be passed by contact with something. Holiness cannot. And Haggai puts this question to the priests If you've got consecrated holy meat and it touches something else, does that other thing become holy? And the priests say, no. And Haggai says, right, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. There is still a problem in the hearts of these people. And the way I would interpret it for us is, they believe that because they are involved in holy activity, that that makes them holy. Because they are in contact with the temple, this holy building project of God, that therefore makes them holy and entitled to material blessing. And if you read on, you will find that they're not being blessed materially. The barn is still empty. The harvests are still failing, even though the rebuilding has started. Being involved in that holy work did not deal with the actual issue of their hearts and their holiness. You see, our holiness is an act of grace. It is a gift. It is a new heart that we need. And one of the great dangers of rebuilding is that God's people can get caught up in holy activity and think that that earns favor with God. It does not. Favor with God is a gift. It is a blessing. It is grace. Please beware as you engage in in God's work that you don't then come home in the evening and sit down and put your feet up and say, boy, God's got to be happy with me today. (laughs) Because our works does not make him love us more than he does. Nothing can make him love us more than he does. And the danger for these people was thinking that they were involved in a holy project and therefore they were making themselves holy by doing that. And Haggai says, no, it's the other way around. You're defiling the project. Once they get the heart issue right, they get this beautiful promise in verse 19 of chapter 2. From this day on, I will bless you. Right, let's finish two minutes with Haggai chapter 2, verse 6. Listen to this. If If you fell asleep for the last couple of minutes, wake up. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and what is desired by all nations will come. I wonder what that is. The desired of all nations will come. Hmm. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord. So these people, remember, have been comparing what they're doing with what went before and saying it's not as good. And God is saying, actually, the glory of what you're doing at this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. Do not despise the day of small things. How on earth can this barn that they're building, this shack of a temple be greater in terms of glory than the one that went before. This temple that they're building will still be standing 520 years later. Herod will come along and pimp it, okay? He'll bling it out with some, some, some nice gear and he'll make it a lot better than they have done it, but it's the same building. The one that they're starting here with Zerubbabel in charge, is going to be the same building that will be standing in Jerusalem 520 years later. And to that building, according to Luke 2, just to summarize these verses, a young couple bring a young boy to that building, that temple. And when they're there, they meet a man called Simeon who was righteous and devout and was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him, moved by the Spirit, stirred up by the Spirit. Simeon went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought the child, Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. This happened in Zerubbabel's temple. This child was brought and blessed by Simeon. In the same chapter of Luke, we read of a prophet called Anna. And Anna was, her whole life she had been in the temple, worshipping day and night, fasting and praying. She was a widow. And coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. That happened in the temple, in Zerubbabel's temple. Still in Luke chapter 2, Jesus got lost. Mummy and daddy weren't looking and Jesus wandered off uh, when he was 12 years old. They were unaware of it. And after three days, where did they find him? They found him in Zerubbabel's temple, in the courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Zerubbabel, don't despise the day of small things. You've no idea what I'm going to do in this temple. In John chapter 2, a man in his early 30s now goes into the temple, Zerubbabel's temple, and he finds people selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. And he makes a whip out of cords and he drives them all out, overturns their tables. Zeal for his father's house is consuming him. Whenever he is explaining later in the chapter what he's doing, he says to the people with Zerubbabel's temple in the background, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. He's starting to let them know that the temple's going to be replaced and that there's a new temple coming. In John 8, it's at this temple that he saves the life of a woman caught in adultery who was going to be executed in front of him as a test to try and trick him in luke 21 some of the disciples are remarking about the temple zerubbabel's temple adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to god and jesus says what you see here time will come when not one stone will be left on another because in a.d 70 rome came and tore zerubbabel's temple apart and in matthew 27 as jesus hung on the cross and breathed his last to pay for our sin To deal with the problem of separation from God inside Zerubbabel's temple, the curtain was torn in two. Zerubbabel, you've no idea, mate. You've no idea (laughs) the glory of this project that you're involved in. You've no idea. The glory of this temple will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord. And in that place, Because of that baby who became that 12-year-old boy, who became that man in his early 30s, who became that man on the cross, because of him in this place, I will grant peace. Zerubbabel, don't look at your work as being insignificant. Don't despise the day of small things. Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, grandson of wicked king Jehoiakim, you are my signet ring. And through you, my promise will be fulfilled and my glory will be seen. The whole earth could not see the glory of Solomon's temple. But for anyone who looks, they can now see the glory that was revealed at Zerubbabel's temple through Jesus. Do not despise the day of small things. You have no idea what God will do with your small building project. Let's pray.